Tonight, welcome everyone. It's good to see you, and it's good to be in the house of the Lord together. We're going to be looking at Psalm 24 tonight. The Psalm 24, a Psalm of David, is found in the Lord's And uh, I will go ahead and read God's Word. And as our custom is in the morning and evening service, after I read God's Word, I'll say this is the Word of the Lord. If you would respond with thanks to God. So hear God's Word now from Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, and the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we will be praying now that you would be pleased to speak to each and every person. We pray you be pleased to use uh, even a broken man such as myself uh, to speak. Lord, we need to hear from you. We don't need a word from each other. Father, we don't need good advice. Lord, we need good news. And so we come to your gospel of grace. The good news that Jesus Christ has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And so Lord, we give you glory for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most people throughout history have lived in a culture where kings are commonplace. You can think of the pharaohs of ancient Egypt. You can think of the kings of ancient Assyria, Babylon, or Greece, uh, uh, Persia. You can think of the great emperors of Rome and China. You can think of great tribal kings in Africa. Uh, you can think of more modern kings of England, France, Russia, many more countries. That's all but gone in America today. Or is it? Now we have a president, we don't have a king, we don't have a monarchy, we have a, a, a constitution and a, and a republican democracy, yet we do have a few kings in our lifetime, do we not? If I threw out the name the King of Rock, who would that be? King of Rock, and most people would say Elvis Presley, a lot of controversy about that in some people, but we won't go there and save that for later. Uh, if I said the King of Pop, who would that be? say this here in Pittsburgh. Now, if you didn't play basketball, and there would be no fans of this man here in Pittsburgh, but there could be some fans of him because I mean, we don't have a basketball team here in Pittsburgh. This is not the guy who wrote the 1611 birth of the Bible, nor who told people to write it. Uh, but King James, who would that be? That would be LeBron James, okay? So there are still kings in our day. There are still figures that people uh, may or may not be worshiping, but that are very significant in the culture. Because they're not in governmental uh, or monarchical positions, doesn't 
But there's only one King of Glory. And that's the focus of our psalm tonight, is the King of Glory. And so I'd like us to keep that question in mind as we go through the psalm. Who is this King of Glory? Let's begin. And in verses 1 and 2, our psalmist, which is David, begins by establishing a few truths about God. When the psalmist says in verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, he's proclaiming God's sovereignty over all that exists. He's proclaiming God's power over everything. He's proclaiming God's control over everything. He's proclaiming nothing less than God's ownership of everything. Abraham Kuyper, the late 19th, early 20th century uh, Dutch uh, theologian and statesman, very well known, famously said this quote, perhaps you've heard it, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to Christ. How can this be the case? How can everything belong to God? Well, quite simply, because He created it. Verse 2 plainly says, He founded it upon the seas, and He established it upon the rivers. God created it so it's His. Plain and simple. Does that make sense? Maybe you would push back on that. Maybe you say, no, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, let's take a little example. Now, today we were, we were supposed to have a picnic with uh, with just ourselves today. That's been pushed two weeks from now. It's for Bethany Baptist Church. Amen? All right. Amen? Bethany Baptist Church? All right. Thank you. Amen for me. There'd be a lot more amens if I was in Bethany Baptist Church. Right? <laughs> right. uh, but we will be there in a picnic with them in two weeks. Now, let's just say, I'll pick on someone here, Gary. Nice, soft heart. There's Gary, right? Nicest guy in the crowd, probably. Nicest guy in the crowd tonight. All right, so Gary's chit-chatting in line. And Gary, our head deacon, he's talking to one of their deacons, maybe Mike Seekers. Catching out, hey, how you doing? How you been? Right, they're getting closer in line, getting food. They finally got there. Gary starts making his plate of food, right? He takes a little of this, a little of that, right? He even gets some of Gayatri's dish, or she brings something. This is a good plate of food. And I'm watching. I'm like, man, Gary's got a good plate of food there. So once Gary gets to the very end, I just walk up to Gary and say, Gary, thanks. I really appreciate that. How about what Gary said? Well, Gary may not say this. Maybe I picked the bad example. He's the nicest guy here. But 99 out of 100 people would say, that's my food. Like, that's my plate. I, I just made it. You watched me make it, right? That plate belongs to me. And I wouldn't fault Gary for saying that. Not in the least. Even though Gary didn't actually make the plate that the food is sitting on. Even though Gary may have made it the best at this one dish. She didn't make the food, you didn't make it, you didn't make any of that stuff, but she did put a little bit of work into it, right? You walk through the line, you put some food on there. So based off that little bit of work, we would say, hey, that's mine. Well, if we can say that little bit of plate of food, again, we didn't make the plate, we didn't make the food, if we can say that's mine, certainly the God who made everything has a right to say that every square inch of it is his. So the world is his and everything in it precisely because he created it. And the thought actually carries a little further in verse 2 than just he created it. See, he not only created it, 
but he upholds it. A better translation for the latter part of verse 2 uh, would say that uh, he not, uh, not that he established it, but that he establishes it. He maintains it to this very day. It's in his hands, his nail not just a better translation, but a more accurate translation. So God just didn't make everything and let it go. He's not a divine clockmaker that just wound it up and is letting it wind down. No, he maintains it. And there are clear New Testament passages, Colossians 1, for example, verses 15 through 17, that will show you that very thing, how Christ created all things. And in him they hold together. Or Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses, that in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, the one through whom He created all things, and in whom all things hold together. So God has not only created us and the world and everything, but He sustains it by the word of His power. I don't want to push this too far from Psalm 24 itself. There's not strict prophetic language in here. There's not language saying that this king of glory is a prophet, but when we step back and think about how God created the world, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth simply by speaking. He spoke the world into existence. We read in Genesis chapter 1, and we read in John chapter 1 his reflection on that, that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the beginning was the Word, capital W. The incarnate Word of God, the truest revelation of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there was nothing that was made that was not made by this Word, who is Christ. So who is this King of glory? Well, first of all, He's our Creator. And he's our Sustainer. He is God's ultimate prophet who not only spoke the world into existence, but who took on human flesh and became the very living word of God himself. He is our sovereign, and to him we owe everything. Our text moves on in the next few verses uh, to a bit of QA uh, for the people of God. And, and we're going late tonight. We're only going to have to get out of the building by 8 30, but we have to 9, so I was told I could preach for an hour. Is that all right, never mind. I'm going to preach for an hour. Probably a bad idea. What's that name? Praise God. Okay, it's not. Yeah, we don't have that much time. It's a little, a little hot for that. All right, so the text moves on in the next few verses to a bit of Q&A, starting with a question in verse 3. That question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? We find a very similar question, which we read at the beginning of Psalm 15. And there it reads like this. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now Psalm 15 gives the long answer. It gives the next four verses that clearly disqualifies you and me. But Psalm 24 actually gives the short version in verse 4. We'll just say simply, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul by his faults, and does not swear deceitfully. So according to this psalm, the one who can enter into God's presence, 
that is, into the presence of the holy, righteous God, the creator of all things, both seen and unseen, is the one whose hands are clean, representing, I, I think, the outer man, the one who does what is right. And the one whose heart is pure, representing the inner man, the one whose thoughts are pure. This man does not lift up his soul to what is false. That is, he doesn't worship what is false, and he doesn't worship falsely. Perhaps representing the first four commandments to what theologians would call the first table of the law. That could be representative there. And it goes on, this man does not swear deceitfully. That is, he speaks truth to his neighbor. Again, could be representative. Could be, not necessarily. But could be representative of the second six commandments, or what theologians would call the second table of the law. You see, this man can enter into God's presence. And this man alone. And as we see from verse 5, when he does, we're told that he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This man, this righteous man, his blameless, spotless life of righteousness qualifies him to walk with the God who is perfectly righteous. And if you're following me up to this point, you're beginning to see a bit of a problem. The problem is this. You and I are not this man. We are not like this. Our hands are not clean. Our hearts are not pure. How often and how easily do we worship what is false? How often do we seek to deceive? Yet even our call to worship in Psalm 100 did tell us to come into God's presence to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Are you telling me God is commanding us to do something that is impossible for us to do? Hold that thought. The text goes on in verse 6. We read this, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now how is the text going to essentially rule us all out and then in a very nice breath say, such is the generation of those who seek God. <laughs> we, we know we're not those things, but now God is basically saying that we are those things. I think the key lies in how we understand the previous two verses. You see, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who can stand in God's holy place, does in fact receive blessing from God. He does receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. And he should, because he rightfully earned it. But if that same man, and of course I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here, is also a God, he doesn't need them. So an alternate and very plausible, I'm not making this up, translation of verse 5 might say, not that he receives blessing from the Lord, that he actually carries blessing from the Lord. He doesn't receive blessing from the Lord. He carries blessing from the Lord. 
righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, if we were to spend some time, and I won't go there in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, and Psalm 68, you would see a picture of this in Scripture. You would see a very clear picture. You see, Christ's work in his life and death on the cross was not for himself. It was to glorify his Father, of course, but it was also for us. And this is how verse 6 can say, Such are those who seek God's face. Because Christ is pleased to give us what he earned to carry God's blessing to us that we might also enter into God's presence. You see, Christ has mediated between God and man. He has stood between us. He is the great high priest of our confession. And as that great high priest, he not only offered the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. Christ not only goes into the presence of God the Father, but he takes us with him when we are united to him by faith. It's by virtue of our union with him that we too will enter into the presence of God our Maker. So who is this King of Glory? Well, He's our creator, he's our sustainer, he is a prophet, but he's also our priest. Our great high priest, the one who laid down his life for us in his death, thereby taking away our sins. And the one who lived a perfectly righteous life on our behalf, the life that we could never live, giving us what he earned, the very righteousness of God. For there is one God, and there is one mediator, mediator between God He's our creator, sustainer, prophet, priest. And alas, we come to our final verses, verses 7 through 10, where we hear our question of the day that's been guiding us so far through this psalm, who is this king of glory? And we hear it here twice. We hear it in a bit of a call and response refrain, if you will, it sounds like this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted out, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now there's a bit of a scene going on here, a bit of a scene being portrayed, and that scene exactly, well, it's not exactly like how many ways does it take to get the center of the little pop, but we won't know in this life. From the commentaries I've read, from my reading of scripture, uh, there are at least five or six plausible options, and you'll see more out there. So one day we will, but I don't think here and now. Could this be when David brought the ark back into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's not the picture of these gates being opened up and these doors that the king of the glory may come in. Right? God's ark representing his presence among his people very well could be. Uh, does it have to do uh, with this even multiple times when the ark arrived back in the city or the temple when they came back from battle? Very possible. Is it part of the liturgy for an autumn festival as some have suggested? Is it a coronation hymn for a newly anointed king? Is it depicting 
Christ's ascension to the Father in heaven after having completed his work here on earth. These verses, more than anything else, when you boil them down, no matter which view you take, I think overall they depict the Lord's coming. God's coming. And if God is coming, then it would behoove us to know even more who this God is. We must know what kind of king this king of glory is. Hence the frame who is this king of glory. As Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary, we must realize how big he is from verses 1 and 2. We must realize how holy he is from verses 3 through 6. And here in verses 7 through 10, we must realize how mighty he is. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a king, one among many. He is the king. He was here before any so-called kings of the earth, and he will be here after their own. He is the king of kings, as the Bible calls him. He is also the Lord. Not a Lord among many, but the Lord. The Lord of Lords, again, from Scripture. In these verses, he's depicted as a warrior king, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. Hosts means armies. He is the Lord of legions of God's angels and armies. As our text simply puts it, he is the king of he is the king who displays the glory of God and brings glory to God. And his prophetic, priestly, and kingly work on behalf of God's people. Now we've looked at who this king of glory is according to our text. My question for you this evening is very simple. Who is this king of glory to you? Who? Is Jesus Christ to you? First, is Jesus Christ your prophet? You need someone in your life that can speak words of truth to you. But you think you can figure that all out on your own. With regard to morality, which is inextricably linked to truth, are you your own standard of right and wrong? Or will you look to the Lord for that? In the first few verses of our text, you acknowledge Christ as your creator and sustainer. And not just of you, but of everything around us. You acknowledge him as your sovereign, as your Lord, to whom you owe your very life. The one in whom you live and move and have to be. Are you saying to God, not my will be done? But thy will be done. Or are you saying to God instead, not thy will be done, God, but my will be done? Is Christ your prophet? Is he your truth? Secondly, is Christ your priest? Your great high priest. Your great high priest that gave his life for you. Um, have you acknowledged that you need this? Have you cried out to him in repentance and faith? 
and subsequently praised him for giving you the blessings and salvation he earned, taking upon himself the death that you deserve. And he praised him for his clean hands and his pure heart. That clean hands and pure heart that turned your way into God's presence. Do you thank him that by your spirit led, continuing to seek his face, he is making your hands and your heart pure? Is this your heart's desire? To be like the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully? If not, what are you seeking to become in this life? You know that if Christ is your great high priest, he ever lives to make intercession for you. Brothers and sisters, is this something that brings you great comfort? That he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, pleading for you as his child, even now. Is Christ your love? Is he your priest? And lastly, is he your king? Is he your true king? Is he your king of glory? I'll ask you, what are the spaces in your heart that you are trying to keep the Lord Jesus Christ, his king of glory, from occupying? Have you stonewalled the king of glory altogether? God's word says to lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come. This king of glory is coming. Is the Lord Jesus Christ still standing on the outside, knocking on the door of your heart, so to speak? Might he be knocking right now, even as I speak? Would you open your heart to him and invite him in, that you might know him and love him the way that he knows you? Would you open up your heart that you might accept and receive rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is freely offered in the gospel. Would you with the psalmist appeal to God as Joseph preached last week to send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. Christ is the light and the truth that will bring you there. He's not just able Perhaps you've known Christ for some time now. Perhaps you do profess Him as Lord and Savior. I'll ask you this. Where are the areas in your life that you're trying to lock Him out of? Where are you unwilling to let the King of glory take up residence in your heart? Might it be in the area of finances? Be in the area of sexuality? Could it be in your work? Could it be with what you do with your eyes? Could it be what you do with your hands? Could it be your dissertation? Could it be your ego? Could it be your reputation? Could it be your entertainment? What is that thing that you're keeping to yourself that you just don't want to let go of? You just don't want him to shine his light into that dark place in your heart just now. What is your fill in the blank? 
Your hearts are not pure and your hands may not be clean. You know you need help. So why are you trying to fight all these battles on your own? Do you not know that Christ, as your King of glory, is ruling and defending you, and ruling and restraining over all of His and your enemies? He's already done for you in your salvation what you could never do for yourself. And here you find yourself in the same situation. You can't have victory over this one thing, and yet you won't give it over to Him. Why not ask Him to do what He's done for you in your salvation and in these areas of your life where you're struggling most? Why not ask this King of glory to come in and to wage holy war, to rule and to reign in places you know He's not yet ruling, but He is you see, the charge is the same for all of us. That we open wide our hearts that the King of glory may come in. That He might rule and reign in our hearts even now. We might acknowledge that He is our Creator and Sustainer. That we owe everything to Him. That He is our Prophet. That He is our Great High Priest. That He is our King. That He has done great things for us indeed. That He has made a way where there was another. Going into God's presence and not just for Himself, but so that we could go with Him. He'll take you with Him. So I close this by inviting you all this evening, once again, to open wide your hearts to the King of the Lord.